0: Welcome back for another episode of Startup Therapy. This is Ryan Rutan from Startups.com. I am joined, as always, by my co-host and partner, Will Schroeder. But today we're doing something a little bit different as well. We also have a co-host, a third co-host. We have brought today one of the godfathers of Silicon Valley, somebody who you likely know, and if you don't, you will know very well by the end end of this half hour, 45 minutes, Uh, We've got Steve Blank with us today. Steve uh, has done some things you certainly know about and has has been an entrepreneur for decades, uh, has been involved in some really important projects, started the uh, customer development methodology, which uh, led to the lean startup movement, which was perhaps more popularized by Eric Ries, but really started with Steve's work. Steve, you're teaching at what, like Stanford, Berkeley, New York University. You're also a fellow at Columbia, right? Like how... Are you violating physics here? <laughs>
1: Where do you teach, Steve?
2: <laughs> you know, I I, I I I do what's called drive-by teaching. Uh, though my, <laughs> my 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 permanent home is uh, I'm an adjunct professor at Stanford and uh, senior fellow at Columbia. Though um, for a couple for a well, for a decade, I taught at Berkeley uh, and NYU, and I also did stints at Imperial College in in London, and then uh, started a class at UCSF. But you know, that's, it's kind of the old adage: is when you can no longer do, you teach. So, <laughs>
0: so there
2: you go. So so well, you know, I get to watch others do entrepreneurship, and now I teach them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but.
0: living vicariously.
2: Well, so, hey, Steve, hey, so that's it. Uh, we wanted I to talk today
0: that. about what happens when a startup sheds their skin. Right. The, yep. the purpose of the discussion today, and and. That they they evolve over time and you know as as they grow but not everybody who started with the startup may make sense on a go forward basis including the founder uh and you had a really really personal story uh in your early career uh, that points directly to this and i would i'd love it if you could if you could walk us through that
2: yeah and it was uh, a part of my early career maybe emotionally and, and you know i was old enough to i guess should have known better but um I, I didn't, and it was pretty painful learning experience, and I didn't really appreciate it until much later. And what happened was, I was on my uh, second chip startup. It's when Silicon Valley actually used to make silicon in a, a company <laughs> called MIPS Computers. I was the VP of marketing. I, you know, I was God's gift, you know, to to marketing because I had come off a good stint in a last one, thought I knew all about it, and and also because it was a small company i also took on the role of acting vp of sales and i was just like relentless i was a fireball i was you know running around the country um, and for a a chip company the role of marketing is is kind of to uh, create demand for sales and at the same time since there was no sales also get something called design wins which is a fancy name for getting an order but a design win actually means convincing engineers that your chip ought to be on their board, and and they were gonna build their product around your your like non-existent piece of semiconductors. So that means they were betting their future on you as well. Um, and so essentially, I was working with engineering, trying to get product market fit, and you know, trying to solve esoteric questions for engineering about what features that customers kind of needed versus what wouldn't like was absolutely necessary. I actually succeeded in the first year uh, You know, from a company that no one knew. I got stuff designed in, and I was having the time of my life. I mean, this was like you know the startup like heaven, especially right. if you were a, a techie like me who, who just loved new technology. I mean, I, I used to love to join companies that I knew nothing about the tech, who was crazy enough to hire me, and I would just soak it all up and pretty soon be able to, at least as a marketeer, at least use the first or second level words that people would think I actually knew something about the product, um, and it was great. And, and after a year, it was pretty good news. Our rent to CEO uh, was replaced by a permanent one, and we had world class VCs. Um, back then, the, the names Kleiner Perkins and Mayfield and IVP were, you know, kind of like Sequoia and others today. When they, they were actually big deals, our chip, you know, our, our microprocessor was almost done, and we got lots of people to design our stuff in, and I had done amazing things and no resources, and I was feeling ten feet tall. I mean, <laughs> sure, you know, I was on so an was emotional just high. I was like, "I'm sorry." <laughs> I said, "You're at an emotional high at this point. You're, uh, you're very top of the world, high. top and, of your game. Nobody can top them." And again, for me, it, it, this is way before I discovered that that what I should have been focused on, or at least a piece pieces how much equity I have. I didn't <laughs> care. I was, uh, I was doing this because it was maximum learning. And for me, you know, the, the, that's why at least in the past, why I used to do startups is how much could I learn? And, and, and could I convince other people that this was the world's best thing? And I was a true believer. And, and so the new CEO calls me in for a chat and like, oh, this is going to be great. He's going to tell me how wonderful I was and what, what our next moves were. And, and actually, you know, this is like decades ago when when most of your listeners probably weren't even born. But I still remember the details. I mean, I I, I, I mean, I, I mean, not the exact details, but I do remember him hearing me tell, hearing him tell me how impressed he was about what I had accomplished so far. Wow, that's great! And I'm just like I'm now eleven feet tall, going to twelve. I got to, you know, if I had to, if I had to leave the room, I should have ducked under the door frame. I was feeling it, but but he wasn't done, because the next thing I remember, it was like the shock of somebody hitting me in the stomach, because his next words were, "Well, that now the company needed to scale, I wasn't the right person to do it," and I still remember, like going what the fuck excuse me I, right. but it was <laughs> no. like wait what exactly we're all thinking the same thing yeah. yeah i mean but but i mean i don't know if you've ever been in this situation i couldn't breathe i mean yeah. Yeah. how could that be i mean these words don't mean it. you know it like my whole world view of like who is this what what's going on i mean what do you mean i'm not the right person he just went through the list of all the great stuff i i did and he said it was and he said something that really took me decades to understand he said you know it was a lot of progress but it was a of it was a set of disconnected tactics i didn't have a coherent strategy no one knew what i was doing i couldn't explain what i was doing when it when, when, when i was asked you know you're just throwing stuff against the wall it doesn't scale he said and i was just speechless because like I thought he was giving me my job description. That's exactly what I thought the first year (laughs) of a startup was supposed to be. I still remember I was incredulous going, what strategy? We didn't need a strategy. We needed design wins. What are you talking about? And so, so I was like, you know, luckily at times I was good at thinking on my feet and where normally, you know, I just would have left and like left the company or something. I, Managed to, like, make my mouth move, and I asked him <laughs> if I could be the person to take the company to the next level. And to this guy's credit, and his name was Vayman Crane, um, long past, I'm, I'm sorry to say, and I only appreciated this years later, he agreed that he was going to start the search regardless of what I was going to say, but I could be a candidate for the job. And, and in hindsight also, instead of just that being a meaningless bullshit statement, he actually agreed to get me a coach to help me understand what I could learn to get to this next level. And I didn't really appreciate that he, he was actually pushing me onto the board and saying, okay, you want to play? Here's what's going to take. And, and I do remember buying all the management books I could find and reading what literature there was at the time. And there was almost none on how to go from a startup to when it transitions into a bigger company. And, sure. and here's where the story really starts. I vaguely remember actually going to lunch with my coach, uh, a nice kind of white-haired old guy who was trying to help the team grow, you know, and learn the skills to and help me learn the skills to grow into the new job. And and, and by the way that white haired old guy it was probably about 25 years younger than i am today so nice. <laughs> but i do remember he had white hair and he was like older than me and was he looked like somebody's granddad which is probably a description of me today and he was like a nice guy but the problem was and here is the problem i'm hoping some of your listeners don't identify with this but i bet you a number of them do i had shut down i was pissed Even as we were having lunch and leaving lunch and meeting at lunch, I was still obsessively thinking about the change in my role, my title, and my status, and I was just angry. I mean, just the only thing I could think about was, I don't get it, I did all this work, and everything was great, and everything was going along fine, so why does anything have to change? But here was the thing that was like, I mean, like, hey, everything's great. And of course it wasn't, but that was where my head was locked into and and the, the problem was I never shared of of any part of this of how I felt with my coach. And to this day, I'm embarrassed to admit, I have no idea what my coach tried to teach me over multiple lunches and weeks. I mean, I remember we ate food. And that's about <laughs> all I remember. And I remember him saying, hey, here's what you should be thinking about and here's the company's getting bigger. I literally paid zero attention. And, and I think the way I could best frame it is, in my righteous anger, I was just unreachable. I mean, I was a that's dick. Fair. Yeah, it's fair. <laughs> I mean, but that's fair. I, and, I, and I shouldn't have been surprised, but, you know, but uh, yet again, I was. <laughs> a month later, the CEO said that the report from the coach said, you know, this nice phrase, I had a long way to go. <laughs> and <laughs> the company was going to hire a VP of marketing. And I was just yet again surprised, uh, and I was crushed. And I quit. And, and, and it took me all these decades to realize what was going on and I could stop or we could continue, but it, it just, it, it was like devastating. It was like, here I thought I was the hero and like, no, I I wasn't. Um, and I was, I remember how like unjust and how unfair and whatever it felt. It took me You know, if you would have asked me a decade later what was going on in my head and and why I handled this badly, and just for your listeners, I handled this as badly as one could, (laughs) I would have simply said I was resistant to change and I made it all about me and never once considered that our CEO was right. And all that was true to a point. But it took me another decade to really be honest that it wasn't about fighting change at all. You know, if you think about it, every day something new was happening at our startup and I was agile and and relentless to keep up with the changes and I was changing lots of things myself. It was actually something more personal, I wouldn't admit, and that it was all these changes that the new CEO was suggesting made me actually fear and be pissed off about what I was losing. And, and And that didn't come in a memo. But if you think about it, when someone says congratulations you know the company has gotten larger and like things need to change including your title well that was a loss of status and identity you know for sure or implicitly he was he was kind of saying you're inadequate to continue in your role and and by the way i felt my stature and the value of my skills had just dropped and then felt that makes felt a, to
0: continue at that point right like really how, hard. How, do you, how do you how do you move forward with any motivation
2: yeah, it's like, hey, you know, that was great. Thanks for all the work, but you're not any good anymore. And well, what do you mean? I was good for the last year w- without understanding why I wasn't good anymore. And then the next one is I felt a loss of certainty. So sure. now I was competing to hold a job I thought was mine forever in the company. It, it, and by the way, we all tend to look at our business card and there was my title and, you know, like that's what it said. <laughs> N- now I had no idea. There was no path. There was no whatever. And if I, if I, yeah. I would have actually had paid attention there was a path because that was what my coach was for but no not anymore and then this other one there was a loss of autonomy is you know in hindsight it was kind of hard to wrap my head about around this one but up until then no one was really telling me what to do there was no like strategy or document or plan you know i did what i wanted when i wanted it i was fine making stuff up on the fly from disconnected tactics Now he was talking about these things called plans and strategy. And then, you know, the last two was like, I I felt the loss of community. We had been a small, tight team and we bonded under pressure and accomplished amazing things. And, you know, if you've been in a startup when when you all fit in the same room, you kind of know what that feels like. And now new people are coming in who knew none of that. And most importantly, they had no idea, you know, what what we had done before, what I had done and appreciated little of it. and 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 in fact, I remember years later talking to the the second or third CEO who said, "Oh, really? Were you in the company? What did you do? <laughs> went, what did I do? <laughs> it's the only reason you were able to get hired and have a job. You know, what did I do? <laughs> um, in fact, it was a great guy named Bob Miller who took took it over and and ran it for years. But you know, like I remember, really, you were the VP of marketing. Oh, did you do anything? It's like Bob. <laughs> 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 and then finally." I thought the process, you know, lacked fairness. No one had warned me or told me the job I was doing needed to change over time. And that's still a perpetual problem. Is no one tells you that companies evolve and your job is going to be evolving and and no one told me what those new skills were that I was going to need. So, you know, I'll exhale now, but but <laughs> but you know, well, this this was a painful story. I mean, this was like I still I still get like you know pains in my stomach when I think about being told, you know, <laughs> great job, we're gonna hire a replacement. <laughs> like what? <laughs> um, well anyway. so, so
1: Steve, there's a ton to unpack here, but if we zoom out a little bit, right, the first thing uh, we should probably talk about is now that you've had the benefit of hindsight and you've seen lots and lots of other startups, you now know that startups evolved. Right, that that there's different epics yep. within a startup's evolution, where where you're going to need a certain type of founder or a certain type of team at the beginning. That's often very different than what you're going to need at the end. Right, in in that yep. in yep. that moment, uh, you know, w- when you were hearing this for the first time, were you able to to understand that companies even evolved past their teams?
2: Heck no, and and it's it's kind of. You know, the only, the only pat on the head I'll give myself at the time is no one was able to articulate kind of, you know, VCs kind of knew, you know, there was this growth path, but they're the last people to tell you, you're, you're, you're not going to have your job forever. We kind of, kind of now understand. And again, because of the fact that entrepreneurship is, is kind of, we now have some tools to know we go through three stages in a startup, at least three stages. The first one is you're searching for what we now call product market fit. And that was the stage we were in, right? I was running around the country trying to see if there were customers for the value propositions we had, which were the features we had built into the chip. And if you're lucky enough to find product market fit, which is when this new CEO came in, that is the fact that we had design wins said, Hey, Steve, the, the first phase of what a startup is, the search for product market fit is over. We need new skills. And those new skills were we're finding a repeatable and scalable business model. So when we find that, we need people who know how to build a company, not just search for product sure. market fit. And that's when you really do need plans and whatever. And then eventually you'll get past the build phase and now you'll need bureaucrats to kind of grow it to profitability and i don't mean that as a bureaucrats a pejorative but people who could kind of you know have like you got hr and you got finance and they have job specs and you know whatever uh, and so this three steps of going from search to build to grow is kind of a known process now but boy i certainly didn't know it and worse the last people even today to tell you about it are your investors or maybe the founders don't even know it, um, which is the concern. Steve, do you think going back in time,
0: if you if you had known that, um, but you would still would you have still had this? You, you talked about something—the loss of certainty. So even if you had understood that the business is transitioned in this way, do you think it would have changed that that feeling for you? Or do you think that your certainty was so tied to continuing the job that you were doing, and and that your your status and identity were tied up in that as well? Would it have made a difference?
2: Well, to be honest, um, y- you know, assuming I had perfect knowledge today, I would have drawn on that whiteboard in this new CEO's office, search, build, grow, and with a question mark that says, where are we? You know, and, and like, you know, and then I would have like also been processing, okay, when do I stop running around like a chicken with my head cut off, you know, trying things all the time and say, hey, I think we got product market fit, time to double down. And obviously my investors had seen it but never gave me the memo because they were now saying, well, hey, let's scale the company. Um, sure. And and, and again, um, it, it, it I'm sure it was just my naivete. Maybe everybody else got it, but I don't think so. Um, I, I, I think we just kind of lacked that framework to understand, oh, okay, everybody, just understand that these are the new skills that you're going to need. Now the question is, whether I would have been able to have those new skills or yeah. what I w- would have been comfortable working for somebody who was brought in to have those skills. It was more about the fact that I thought once you get a title, you get it forever. And sure. once, you know, and once you did great, it's, t- you know, you never get removed without right. understanding. I have tenure his, now. <laughs> right. And you have tenure. tenure. Yep. <laughs> without understanding, you were actually an adjunct. <laughs> <rather> <laughs> yeah, than exactly. A tenured, a tenured faculty. Um does that make sense? It yeah. does.
0: It does, you know, and I think it's an important point that not everybody is maybe going to be—I don't want to say capable, but maybe doesn't even want to transition or skill up, right? There, are, I, I know a lot of people who feel really, really comfortable um, at the at the search phase, and that's what they really, really love. Like they want Me to too. be in that extreme uncertainty. They want yeah. to live there, right? And so, as the company transition, particularly as it goes beyond grow and into, uh, you know, when you get to that really bureaucratic stage. And there's a lot of people who like just they want to tap out. They want to be gone. I, I think that that comes with some maturity and some experience and having been through it a couple of times and not thinking like, "Oh, if I lose this, then I'll never have anything again." Um, but I had a, I had a very personal experience with that. I was in the the CEO seat at the time, and I was growing a digital agency, and I had a, a person that I had, had started as a salesperson and moved up to a sales manager. And then as our clients started to get bigger and more sophisticated, we're moving beyond these very small businesses, this kind of mom and pops into mid-sized businesses, regional and to to national brands. He no longer could keep up with that and didn't enjoy the interactions anymore. It was a totally different scale out of his comfort zone. I made the mistake of trying to keep him in that role and saying like, it's just a matter of time. We just got to skill him up. We just got to, we got to move forward. It wasn't the skills he lacked. It just, it wasn't the place that he really wanted to be. Um, And in fact, now twenty years later, he's still working with small businesses as a media buyer for small businesses in uh, in uh, Texas. Somewhere where is he? He's uh, San Antonio, I think, and loves it. Right, and he's he's very happy doing what he's doing. So he got. But he probably still hates you. Yeah, no, no, he doesn't. (laughs) No, you know, he he, we we've we've talked fairly recently. No, he said, yeah, you know, it. We we should have ended it sooner, right? Like I think you said something in the article about. Uh, adding 5 years to your career. I probably added 18 months to 2 years to his career that he didn't need that weren't productive time.
2: Yeah. And and here's one of the problems um is that we've we have an incentive structure that makes you know these early employees hold on to the door frame and that's four year vesting. Yeah. So yep. so if all of a sudden you understand that the real model of a company is search build and grow yet yet we have four year vesting rather than vesting per per kind of kind of phase stage
0: yeah yeah Yeah.
2: if if i would have just said hey you're a search guy great you know you're going to vest at the end of search you only need to stay 18 months and like you know we'll redo your stock if you if you like learn the skills to go through the build phase but you know let's figure out who you are and the problem is is i see a lot of startups both getting stuck in that phase because like young ceos don't know this either and have a hard time replacing people and and the second problem is it always turns into trauma or fighting with yes. each other. Or, <laughs> or, and, and by the way, this involves founders and co-founders. As you find out your co-founder, it, it was Wozniak, right. Right? right? Which is great, but like Wozniak never scaled past being Wozniak in right. a garage. Um, right. And, but, but at least in his case, he was acknowledged and valued at least to the extent that Jobs could ever acknowledge and value anybody. Um, it's, it, it, but most co-founders who don't have those skills don't end up that way. It almost always ends up as a pissing contest with like arguments and lawyers and whatever. And, you know, some large percentage of of startups self-destruct over those things w- without that kind of awareness that like maybe we should actually understand this from day one. And Steve, so from a founder's standpoint, part of it is the founder
1: themselves understanding that they're going to go through these different stages and understanding that both themselves as well yep. as their staff may make sense for different stages. I think a lot of what you're talking about too is whereby I hire somebody. Let's let's say I hire a, a CTO, and it's day one. There's there's three of us in a room, and yep. she's amazing, right? She's the best CTO ever, yep. right? But she's never been a CTO before. She was a line level developer at the last company. She's the CTO now because she's the only person in the company, right? And so we start growing a little bit. We start adding some staff, et cetera. Now she has a few people working under her, but those people working under her would have never worked under her in any other company, right? She starts to get grandfathered into this presidency, so to speak, that she never really earned. She just happened to be the first person there. Yeah. Right? Right. It happens almost every the day time, in a startup, right? Yep. And so now all of a sudden, yep. the founder has to be able to have this conversation with her to say, look, we appreciate what you did so much. You were the first person willing to raise their hand and dig into this problem. You built most of what we have to show for it. But now that place for you doesn't exist anymore. What do you do with that? Right? How do you take somebody from that role and reintegrate them? Steve, could you have been a a line level marketing and salesperson after where you had been in the organization?
2: No, you know. So, so this is the problem with titles. Titles immediately set you up for an ego problem, right? And so, it's a loss of status. So, it's almost impossible to take a title away from someone and give it to someone else and still retain that employee. And so. One of the things I suggest to startups, and, and again, it's not a solution, it's just a way to think about it, is whether titles need to be formal before the company finds product market fit. That is, in the search phase, you know, you need crazy people, both in engineering, marketing, sales, whatever. You know, you really do need the people to do that, but it's almost certain that the people who are great at those You know, in engineering, it's like, you know, like all this stuff we're going to have to refactor. It doesn't matter. Let's just get it up and running versus, you know, the VP of engineering who comes in later who goes, well, no, this stuff is cruft. How did anybody build this? Well, this is what got us our first, you know, 10 million bucks of of revenue. Uh, So the other one is that, you know, startups and VCs have historically operated on the I'll deal with this later principle and letting early employees know what happens as the company scales. And the common wisdom is that no one would want to work like crazy, knowing that they might not be the ones to lead the company as it grows. You know, this is kind of like what I call the Moses problem. You'll work for years to get the tribe to the promised land, but you're not around to cross over. (laughs) You know, the company Uh, yeah right now think about it it's great i got you that was my problem i got us to the promised land which is for every startup is did i find product market fit but but i didn't even get any recognition for for doing that in fact to answer your question it might have been maybe possible to like say no 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 you're the marketing emeritus whatever champion who got us here and we appreciate we would not be here. I mean, think about it. The new CEO didn't even un- appreciate the fact that the company wouldn't be there without those original design Of ways. course. But it was like, okay, let's move on. That was the next step. That is, that we these make rational sense to move on, but we need to put processes in place to acknowledge and deal with this real sense of loss to keep these early employees motivated and retained because in your example losing that original cto you might be losing somebody who actually could be a great asset in another role but being able to convince them that 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 there is a future for them kind of uh, you know requires something special that doesn't exist do you declare them cultural co-founders do you you know help them understand the company's growing and they're the ambassadors do you formalize it as part of an onboarding process Then they get to tell the stories of what it took to get the product market fit? You know, just telling employees a change is going to come is also not sufficient, you know, because you need somehow to be able to teach new skills when you scale from search to build. And then you're going to have this problem again when you're going to grow from tens to tens to hundreds to ultimately thousands of people. And so, it's it's kind of a lot harder to kind of have to replace employees all the time, um, but it's also hard to keep the ones in place in the wrong roles. So it's it's a real problem. So Steve, um,
1: but I think it. I'm, oh, sorry, I was yes. I was going to say, if you could go back in time, Marty McFly style, and you and you had to be the CEO in that chair, talking to you know the younger version of yourself, in, in knowing what you know now, what would you have done with Steve?
2: Well, I would have. Um, I don't think the problem was the new CEO. I think the problem was the startup from day one didn't understand this notion of life changes after product uh-huh. market fit, and that was just a function function of VCs have still today to this day have defaulted to. We'll deal with this later because, like, we don't know how to deal sure. with it when it happens. Meaning, if there was simply an acknowledgement in the industry that says. Look, at Product Market Fit, we don't need those world-class skills you had over here on the left-hand side of, you know, do anything that's required to get there. I mean, in fact, you see, saw it at Uber at the, at a massive absolutely. scale with the CEO. And now that Uber's going public today, is that everything that, um, I'm blanking on his name, but the Travis. first CEO did was absolutely what you, Travis, what you needed to do when you were an insane founder, you know, it was like, okay, it's us against everybody else, and every rent seeker wants us out of out of their hair and doesn't want us in their in their space. And blah blah blah. I'll do anything. Well, what we discovered is that he was still acting like a startup entrepreneur when, at that size and scale, that was inappropriate behavior. I'll make the argument was that it was obviously appropriate behavior for a struggling startup, and in fact, some of those things, as we saw at Uber scale. Get you in huge trouble when you carry still carry those startup behaviors at the wrong phase yeah. of the company. And it's worse when it's being done by the CEO because the rest of the company patterns their behavior and their culture on uh, on what Absolutely. the CEO does. So, but what's interesting
1: is Uber did have this, this powerhouse uh, of a contributor, right? Now, granted, in Travis's case, they, they, had, they had much more, they had deeper issues, right? But, but, but take it back to Apple with jobs, right? the idea of getting rid of you know this 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 visionary contributor pains people and yet the founder feels compelled to do it you know one of their one of their staff members or in this case the board what have you i think the question for a lot of our founders is going to be yeah i have some of these people on my staff right now we've sort of outgrown them but but they're they're fire plugs i, I don't want to lose them uh steve we're trying to figure out what to do with them you know what i mean
2: so I think there are lots of things that um, you could do when, when people go from search to build. You know, are there new markets and adjacent spaces we should have been looking at? So, for example, I could imagine that, you know, the CEO could have been screwing with my head that says, congratulations, you found product market fit. We're promoting you to head of special projects. Now, of course, he wasn't promoting me, but he could have said, you know, I would have went home and said, hey, I got a promotion rather than, you know, a year later go, wait a minute, what just happened here? But seriously, the company could have afforded keeping me and by special projects. There was a ton of other things. We want you to go after these new markets, Steve, now that you've created our mainstream market. Go after designing our stuff into printers and other places where it would have been, or go after the military market, or we want you to go after X or Y. Oh, great. You know what? I probably would have had fun learned new things and probably would have maybe actually generated at minimum my money's worth for my salary, if not exponentially finding new uh, opportunities for the company, because those would have been still in pre-product market fit phases where my skills would have been still very useful. The same with your example about a a CTO who was, you know, brought in way past her pay grade. Great, congratulations, we're promoting you to X, to these engineering new projects, which are off of the mainstream path. But you could obviously see they're going to need these other new apps or supporting stuff or building things out for customer support, but you could describe them as promotions. And then people could decide whether they want to do that or, no, no, no! I want to be here on the you know mainstream path, and then you could have the conversation that says, "Okay, well, for the mainstream path, here are the skills you need to do." And and this time, if it would have presented with, "I'll give you a coach," or you could go through, you know, opening up these new markets. I probably would have said, "Nah, screw the coach. Let me go do the new markets." <laughs> it does, does that make sense,
1: and I, and I think for sure. for a lot of uh, the, the the founders that have been in this case through their first startup again, it's first hard for them to realize that the change is even happening. Again, sometimes it happens to them, but it's most certainly going to happen with their yes. staff, right? And no one has not has any experience at the leadership level having ever gone through this before, right? And so it, it's, it, it's really hard if you don't have some good mentorship uh, among the founders to figure out how to take this great talent and continue to put them on a path that both contributes,
2: but is also relevant to where the company is. Do you know what I mean? You you nailed it. And in fact, the only way to kind of keep this top of mind is I would write on a master whiteboard, like where everybody looks at it, the three boxes, search, build, and grow. And that little interface between search and build says product market fit. And you keep asking yourselves, have we found product market fit? And if we have, everybody should be looking at their business card and go, uh uh-oh, you know, what are the new skills needed to go to this next phase? And it shouldn't be like, oh, we all need to look for jobs, and meaning outside the company. It should be we should be thinking about: are we going to skill up, or can we find other places to use our existing superpowers? Mine were I loved finding new markets where, like, no one thought you know it was possible. Um, you know, in this company, the one I was using the example, we were taking on Intel, which was like taking on Google, Facebook, and you know <laughs> Twitter all rolled into one at the time. And, 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 by the way, we gave him a run for the money. I mean, you know, eventually eventually failed, but, like, for a while, Andy Grove was pretty nervous. Um, and, and there were, like, five of us in the room. We all fit in John That's had car at the time. Um, so it was, you know, it was a good, great example of punching above your weight. But if that box would have been staring us in the face, you know, we might have been mature enough with maybe an, um, a board member trying to teach us this or an outside coach saying, Listen. Keep doing what you're doing, and this is great. But here's how we're going to be thinking about that. You know, the game is going to unfold, and and I wouldn't have taken it as personally as I would have. And I think, you know, it's not. There's no magic wand. I think that solves this problem. But but more knowledge for, on all sides about how this plays out. I think at the end would really solve a lot of these. You know role you're taking my job away and how come i did a great job and now you're hired somebody with more stock than me or you know why do they have like people reporting to them and i'm now sitting in the corner what the heck just happened i think to get it back down to ceos need to understand that that you know one of the things that um, after i read about this uh, i i realized that the researchers found a link between social connection and physical discomfort you know Being hungry and being ostracized both activate neural responses because it turns out as as human beings, we kind of have now seen Facebook, you know, et cetera, being socially connected is actually necessary for survival. And so, and here's the mistake. We tend to think of a job as purely an economic transaction. The brain experiences the workplace as a social system. And so, whoa, you know by the way, my, my CEO was right. You know, even though the losses were triggering something primal, I didn't need to learn discipline and pattern recognition and time management and separating the trivial from the important and the difference between tactics and strategy. And I needed to grow from being a great individual contributor to being a manager and then a leader. And instead I walked away from learning all of it. And I probably added, uh, you know, five years to my career um that Steve, i didn't can you stick, do. stick on that um, point for a second you know, you've gone on to found your
1: own companies at what point did you see the companies yep. growing beyond you did, did you have the wherewithal at the time to say this thing is getting
2: bigger than me so finally it was startup <laughs> eight <laughs> i'm embarrassed to tell you how long <laughs> but but me and my co-founder planned this one from day one that if we found product market fit and this was in the last bubble um it was actually a bubble at the turn of the, the century where it kind of felt like this bubble, where we said if we find product market fit, we were going to use our VCs to find us a suit, meaning somebody who looked the part, um, who actually sure. could scale this thing, and who actually have skill sets. We didn't. And we, um, God bless our uh, John Doerr at the time at Kleiner Perkins, helped us recruit the chief operating officer of. Uh, uh, Wow, uh, KPMG, big uh, um, kind of accounting and integration firm. A guy named Roger Saboni, who had who had all the classic skills we would have needed if the bubble would have continued to take. We had taken the company to 125 wow. million dollars in year three of real revenue, and he was clearly a guy to take it to a billion. Um, and he was also the classic, you know, like guy who spent the first, you know, 30 days like. <laughs> finding the bathroom and then would say, you know, gee, it's so disorganized here. <laughs> you know, God, Roger, it's so disorganized because we got $125 million of revenue in three years. But to his credit, I learned a ton about what building and growing a company would look like. Unfortunately for him and the company, the you know, we went public, and I I retired the day before the IPO went effective because I, <laughs> I knew what this game was this time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, to founders, don't wait for Cash the IPO up. to go home because <laughs> I wanted to go home <laughs> and see my. Well, I wanted to go home and see my kids that. grow up, which was a, maybe a lesson for another podcast because I watched some great people who I thought were world class role models have feet of clay at home, meaning. You know their kids hated them when they finally grew up because they never saw their parents, and I didn't want to follow that model. But that's that's for another story. But but in any case, uh, we brought in a world class CEO because we had seen this model before, and and, um, and realized that his skill sets um, were what we didn't have, nor did we want to have. And he actually, I just just watching him for a year, it was clear he had skills to. I mean, his. His, his staff was bigger than our company and he was managing people you know 40,000 people in his in his last job and he g- came into a 45 person company but truly Steve, he did understand uh, uh, those build and grow skills
0: for our for our listeners purposes because most of these folks will not have been through eight startups they can have learned this firsthand right hit their head on the bar enough times knowing to duck what what could <laughs> we be telling them now that would help them to understand when this period is approaching?
2: Well, you know, if you're a listener, to so kind of understand the notion of product market fit, and I think that's kind of a, a key. That is, have you actually found the right customers and the right feature set where people are starting to grab your product physically or virtually out of your hands? That's a, a major transition point, not only in engineering, that's when you need to refactor and then blah, 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 but also in organization. That you need to look around and go, great, everybody who got me to this promised land, including me, needs to skill up because it ain't the same set of skills that we need on this other side. We just finished with searching for a business model. Now we need to build the company. And, And that's less about, you know, gee, do you get to keep your job? That's more about if you're a founder looking around and thinking what jobs need to change for us to get to that next level. Is it scale? Is it profitability? Is it revenue? Whatever it is, if we think we found product market fit, we can't continue to do the same things. And so you need to be having that conversation with your co-founders and your investors. Have we reached that point? And if so, what needs to change? And if the answer is nothing, you're going out of business, my friend. And if the answer is, oh, crap, sure. you know, there's good news and there's bad news is how do we do this, but not like lose our greatest asset, which absolutely. are actually our employees? How do we actually move them with the right, with the right language, right motivation, right skill up, right something else? You know, companies have now gotten smart enough to invest in onboarding, but we've not got smart enough yet to invest in in like onboarding to the next phase. And if we were really thinking about it, this is the next level of onboarding. How do we onboard people to their next right? Absolutely, step in their and careers? so
1: Steve. Uh, you know, if we look at this, this holistically, uh, you know, we zoom out and say um, what this is really about is entrepreneurs having to understand that there's that there's a shelf life for everybody themselves included. Would would you if we're looking at kind of some some words of yeah. wisdom to kind of to wrap with our audience? Is there anything that you would tell either, you know, Steve from from the past or founders from the present? that they can start to look for in their organization in order to find out where they're going to start to, you know, where they're going to see the the challenges within their staff.
2: Well, you know, I, I would just change the entire model, <laughs> but since, since we're not going to get a, 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 a have enough, enough time to describe it. But if you're an early employee, like that young CTO you described, I would be thinking about a um, good point, a different vesting schedule, because, you know, you, you know you kind of should look around and know that that tag that's just been placed on your back is that says expires in 18 months (laughs) so yeah right right right. but you have four-year vesting (laughs) oops well you know the yeah but but the game is the vcs already know that so they've already factored that in but (laughs) but you're the only person who hasn't gotten the memo oops um (laughs) you know the other is that um and founders have gotten smart i mean you know, this is the problem Problem with founders and, and investors in the pan. in the 20th century you used to get screwed. You'd build a great company and they'd say, great, thank you for getting at the product market fit. We're bringing in some senior executive. F- thanks a lot. We don't need you anymore. Well, at least now founders and smart ones have uh, gotten different vesting schedules and gotten, you know, accelerated vesting and maybe RSAs who restricted stock agreements rather than standard stuff. So uh, also I'd be thinking about as a founder about what your tenure might be once Absolutely. the company does get to another uh, level, and then also be thinking thinking about if you're a founder, how much do I want to set uh, hold on to the door frame because it's my title and my company versus what's it, what's going to take to bring in the additional skills to grow the company to the next level, um, and um, and and I see this often, and and actually. I see it often um, equally in in venture funded companies or and companies that have managed to keep you know VCs kind of at arm's length. Is the same problem? Is that you know the founders right. think their job is to keep their job <laughs> rather than like that, that's you know that's great, but that's not not really the goal. I mean, you know, if you haven't figured it out already, it's a to have a great time, but it's a liquidity Ponzi scheme. <laughs> the, the the goal is to to maximize liquidity, as you own the most right. largest percentage, you can by the time it goes public or or has some liquidity event.
0: Okay, and so for everybody listening, I, we've we've touched on so much today. There's a lot of really important points here, but you know, short of changing the model, which I I, I do agree, Steve, there is definitely room to rethink a lot of how we do this. Start to think of things in stages. Start to think about contrib- contribution in terms of this stage. And what that should mean in terms of status, in terms of of, of your future within the company, in terms of your vesting, uh, I think that is all really, really possible. Um, obviously, that takes a little bit longer. I think for everybody listening today, you know, I think becoming aware that these changes do happen, uh, and and that you will face these over time, um, and being aware of how you can recognize that they're coming. And some of the small things that you can do to prepare yourselves for those, to prepare your staff for those, you know, from just being more open in the conversations about what will happen as the company transitions, about what stage we're even at, how close we're getting to the next stage, right? Are we going from search to build? Are we going from build to grow? Um, I think that can go a long way. So you guys have any final words to kind of put a bow on this and, and send people back to... (laughs) <laughs> their <laughs> lives of uncertainty uh, so they can hey, focus Steve? on not losing their uh, status Steve, uh, through autonomy. You've created a number
1: of resources. I saw I mean, some of your, your well, articles yeah. recently, especially on some of these things around how the structures should change. Do you think you could point some folks to, to you know where you've been uh, writing or, or teaching about some of this stuff?
2: Yeah, if you uh, go to com, you'll see uh, uh, an infinite series of blog posts about uh, startups, entrepreneurship, large company entrepreneurship, um, entrepreneurship and and governments. And then there's a, a tab on top with a ton of startup tools, resources for startups as well. And just as a last thought for, for your listeners, you know, how you handle change will affect the trajectory of your career, but also possibly your ultimate net worth. So it, it, it certainly deserves some thought and, and, um, it should not happen to it's, it's you.
1: Great advice. You should be prepared. Uh, well, Steve. Hey, thanks for joining us. Uh, again, we really can't get better advice than coming from you, considering how far you've been into this. Uh, it was appreciated, and uh, and for folks that uh, you know are listening, you can always find us at uh, therapyatstartups.com. Uh, if you have questions, anything that we can maybe uh, you know forward on to Steve in the thread um, to respond to, we'd love to hear from you. That's a wrap for this episode of the Startup Therapy
0: Podcast. This is Ryan Rutan on behalf of my partner, Will Schroeder, and all the Startups.com family thanking you for joining us. And we hope you'll continue to join us. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment on iTunes or wherever you love to listen to Startup Therapy. You can find all of our episodes at Startups.com slash podcast. If you're looking for more amazing resources to launch or grow your startup, be sure to head to Startups.com and check out Startups Unlimited. It's everything we have to offer, from our online university to our amazing community of experts and founders, and even all the tools we've built like BizPlan, Fundable, and LaunchRock. It's everything a founder needs. Visit Startups.com slash begin. That's Startups.com slash B-E-G-I-N. You'll thank me later.